his mercy restores us to that. Restores us to that place and position of honor and love, which is a wonderful thing. So in addition to praising God together, another thing that I have missed is hearing from God together by way of the manifestations of Holy Spirit, specifically speaking. I had been considering what I was going to teach this morning, and then God reminded me that I had promised to teach something specific the first time we got back together. So today is our first, and I trust our only, celebration of Resicast. So I'd like to explain that, in case you might have forgotten. Back in March, when COVID-19 first caused worldwide lockdowns. I don't think any of us imagined how long that would last. I think it was around the middle of March. I couldn't at the time imagine that it was going to last until Easter, which is the middle of April. (laughs) And certainly not to Pentecost, which is the end of May. And yet it did. And so we did not have the opportunity to celebrate the two greatest events in human history as a family as a body of believers. So that's why we're going to celebrate Resicast, the resurrection and Pentecost. And the importance of the resurrection obviously cannot be overstated. I don't care how big you state it, you cannot possibly overstate it. Without the resurrection, the death of Jesus on the cross would have been certainly noble, but it would have been tragic and fruitless as well. Without the resurrection, You and I would still be dead in our sins. We would be without God and without hope. Fortunately, God did raise Jesus from the dead so that his dead was not noble and tragic, but his death was noble and victorious. And that's something that we can celebrate. And it is, this is something that has always intrigued me, at least for about the last 40 years anyway that I've been thinking about it. And that is that no place in Scripture does God reveal the moment when he raised Jesus from the dead? When life first came into that dead body of Christ, nothing is described about that. That is something that God kept private between himself and his son. What a great moment that would be. Christ, the last thing that he did on the cross, he committed his spirit to God and then he died. Three days and three nights later, God revived him and didn't simply revive him as he was before, didn't simply give him back life with a beaten body, didn't even give him back life with a healthy body, gave him back life with a spiritual body. What that must have been like, we don't know, but I can imagine it was wonderful. And even though the resurrection itself is not described for us, Many of the resurrection appearances are, and many testimonies about the resurrection and and the importance of it are given. And one of my favorite is from the book of 1 Corinthians. And this was a book written to people in Greece, people who would have had no acquaintance personally with Jesus or his apostles. And here's what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 15.3. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, this is interesting. We know that the Bible is God's word. If it's in God's word, it's important. But this is what's of first importance. And what is it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day 
in accordance with the scriptures. That is the most important thing. If that's the only thing that you know, you at least know the most important thing in the world to know. And the day that the resurrection occurred, that moment in time when God raised Christ from the dead, that was good for Jesus. That was very good for Jesus. Fifty days after the resurrection, it was going to become very good for the rest of the world. And that's what Pentecost is all about. Because the resurrection was not the last event in the life of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. One more thing needed to occur before the age of the church could be ushered in. And Jesus himself kind of indicates this in the Gospel of John. Let's take a look at it in John chapter 7. This is given at the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? This is one, that was one of the three great feasts in, the, in Judaism. And Jesus was at the temple, as he should have been, on the Feast of Tabernacles. And in verse 37 of John 7, it says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. One of our songs this morning was about that drinking. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he's making this statement. He's at the temple, so he's talking to Jews. He's referring to their scriptures, and he said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But what exactly does that mean? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, we just keep reading, and it's going to be explained to us. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. They had not received it in John 7, but they were to receive it, and Jesus is prophesying about that. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now what does it mean, what are we looking for here, for Jesus to be glorified? What exactly is that referring to? I mean, it could refer to a lot of things. What does it refer to? Well, it's not referring to the final glory at the end of the book of Revelation, because that still has not yet come, and the Spirit, we know, has already been given. So that's not what we were waiting for. And it wasn't simply the resurrection itself, because we know that the resurrection occurred and the Spirit still had not been given. What was this piece of glory that God is talking about that needed to occur before the Spirit would be given? Well, that piece of glory is the ascension of Jesus Christ from the earth to heaven to sit at God's right hand in power and authority and glory. That was the final piece that needed to happen before the Holy Spirit would be poured out. That, geez, the ascension occurred 40 days after the resurrection, and it actually is often ignored. Resurrection is a big deal. Pentecost is a big deal. The ascension, though, what that represented, the glorification of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God, the final exclamation point of the completion of our redemption when the Son of God is sitting at God's right hand. 
It's recorded for us in a number of places in, in the New Testament. I want to go to Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, obviously, but he also wrote the book of Acts. So I want to look at the Ascension in the Gospel of Luke and then Pentecost, which, of course, is in the book of Acts. So verse 49 of Luke 24, Jesus is talking to the apostles, and he says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Not right then and there. He didn't say, okay, here I am giving you the promise of the Father. He is speaking specifically still about something future. I am going to be sending you the promise of the Father. But stay in the city, in Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. What a great figurative picture that is of receiving spirit. It's not just sitting on your shoulder. It's not just hanging around outside. You are being clothed or would be the apostles at this point, they were to be clothed in spirit. Verse 50, And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. This is a remarkable thing to me. Again, when you look at what God is saying, the very last thing Jesus does before he leaves the earth is bless his apostles. That's the very last thing that he does. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. As he's blessing them, while he's doing this, that is when God brings him up to sit, the risen Son of God, at his right hand. All that needed to be done for man's redemption has been done. The Son of God is with the Father at his right hand, ready to start the church. Because before the promise of the Father could come, as we read in John, Christ needed to be glorified. And the glorification that it was referring to is right here at the ascension when Christ was brought to heaven to God's right hand. It was more than just his resurrection. That was part of it, and that was great. But it was also his, his ascension to sit with God. Now Pentecost could come. Now the Spirit could flow out of you as rivers of water. Now you can be clothed in God's gift of Holy Spirit. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2 verse 4 it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, now we know that's ten days later, we, looking backwards we know, the apostles didn't know that it was going to be Pentecost ten days later. They knew that it was going to happen soon, not many days hence it says in Acts 1. We, looking back, know it was ten days later. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. We know that de every day the apostles went to the temple, to the house of God, and there they prayed. So here they are again on the day of Pentecost, which is, of course, a day everybody would be at the temple. That was a high feast when Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to be at the Temple Mount. This is when God chose to pour out the gift of Holy Spirit. When all of his people, or many of his people, would be gathered together to see it. Verse 2, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Figuratively, Jesus described this as being clothed with the Spirit. 
They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. At this very moment, when they were together on the Temple Mount, when God poured out Spirit for the first, but thankfully not the last time, at this moment, the apostles knew by experience that what Jesus had promised them was true. It's not to say that they doubted Jesus. They certainly didn't doubt Jesus. But they had not yet experienced what Jesus had been promising to them. Because you cannot see or touch or feel God's gift of Holy Spirit. Spirit, by its very definition, is non-physical. So you cannot see it with any of, or perceive it with your five senses. They knew that they had been clothed. They knew that they had been filled because they spoke in tongues, because they manifested the gift of Holy Spirit. You see, we have to put ourselves into the mindset and the understanding of the first century, not the 21st century. If you're going to understand what Scripture says, what it means, what it means not only where it's written, but what it means to you, you have to understand what did this mean to those who first heard it. We can't just decide what does it mean to me first. What did it mean when God first inspired it? Now, how do I apply that to my mind? And in the first century, the Jews did not believe that you knew anything unless you had actually experienced it. The idea that book learning alone would constitute knowledge, that was alien to the mind of the first century Jew, and it is foreign to what God is talking about when you read in his word. See, that's why in the first century, when disciples followed a master, they followed a rabbi, just like the twelve followed Jesus. When disciples followed a rabbi, they didn't go to classrooms and learn from him. They lived with him. They followed him. That's why the apostles, when Jesus commissioned the twelve, he commissioned them to be with him. That's one of the things it says in scripture. And this is how they learned, to experience the life of the master. Because you don't really know something until you have experienced it. And you know, over the last three months, one of the things we've been doing online is that I've been teaching the Getting to Know God Better class, which is an introductory class. And I am not interested in helping people know about God. That's not, that's not my end, end game here, is that you'll know all about God. You can quote lots of scriptures. Certainly, I want you to know about God, but what I want even more is for you to know God and to know him in a biblical fashion, which means you know God because you have experienced his presence, his spirit, his power in your life. I want you to move from knowing about God, which many Christians do, to knowing God in a personal and fulfilling way with God as your father. To know God as your Father. I don't know if you have noticed that when we have manifestations of spirit in one of our meetings, interpretation of tongues and prophecy, very often God will repeat more than once on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, whatever you're getting together, that he loves us. Why does God keep telling us that he loves us? Because there must be some part of our heart that doesn't yet believe it. And he knows that, so he continues to tell us. And to truly know something, 
You have to experience it. And we do this even in, in some contexts today, although in the 21st century, we tend to elevate book learning, that when you pass the test, you know it. That's not the way things are. Many of you know my daughter, Sarah. In 2016, she graduated with her PhD in microbiology and immunology. Susan and I went out to see her. We went out to the graduation, proud parents, we loved it. Now, because of her uh, degree in immunology, she actually was awarded her degree from Stanford Medical School. So her graduation was not only the PhDs, but it was all the MDs that year. These are smart people. Stanford is one of the best medical uh, colleges in the world. So these are smart people, and they had proven themselves by passing all their tests and getting to this place that they could graduate. Now, I want to ask you something. How many of you would have been comfortable having one of these newly minted doctors perform heart surgery on you the day after graduation? Yeah, no, we're not so much. Well, why? They passed their tests, flying colors, smart people. Why, why the hesitation? Well, it's obvious. Even though they know in their minds and have studied lots of things, we don't yet consider that they really know how to be a doctor and how to do heart surgery. We want them to have experience. And once they have experience, then we will accept that, okay, they do know how to do a doctor. They do know how to do heart surgery. And the same is true in the Bible. And you see this. I want to illustrate it in a verse. You can turn to Acts 19 if you'd like to. If you don't, I'll read it to you. But this is an example from the book of Acts on the difference between knowing something intellectually or knowing something by hearing about it and actually knowing something by experience. It's an interesting setup. You should read the record in Acts chapter 19. This is an evil spirit speaking, okay? You don't often have much information of, that evil spirits are speaking, but here's one, and it's in Acts chapter 19, verse 15. It says, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Now the word, the English word know, K-N-O-W, appears twice in this verse, but it is represented by two different Greek words which have two different sets of meanings. The first word know means to know by experience. Jesus, I know. This evil spirit had actually encountered Jesus. And as we know from the Gospels, it never worked out well for evil spirits who encountered Jesus. <laughs> but this evil spirit had encountered Jesus. The second word, know, means to simply be acquainted with something. And in the New International Version, they try to bring that out, and they say, Paul, I know about, because they recognize that it's a different Greek word. It means something different. It means to be acquainted with something. So this spirit had directly encountered Jesus, but it had only heard of the Apostle Paul who walked in the power of Christ. It had a mental grasp of who Paul was and what he represented. But that was very different from actually encountering the power of God which it had in Jesus. And let's look at the church next with this. Many, perhaps most Christians have the same issue with God. They know about God. They can quote scriptures. They have 
verses on their wall or nice sayings on their wall. They know a lot about God, but they don't actually have much experience with God. God wants us to know him by experience, not by hearsay. That's what we're after. If it's only hearsay, then you know what? Christianity is just another competing philosophy out there in the world without the experience of God. The thing that sets the Bible and Christianity apart from all other religions and philosophies is the Word of God works. You can apply it and see it in your life. The Egyptian Book of the Dead has not ever raised a mummy to life. But the Bible has in it the knowledge of the power of God that you and I can experience. We see this in 1 John. Now, John, this is an epistle, uh, a letter written by the Apostle John, someone who lived with Christ, certainly experienced Christ, someone who was there on Pentecost, the beginning of the church, and experienced God and his power. And look what he says in this first verse. 1 John 1.1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see the, the descriptions that he's making there? This isn't theoretical for John. This, this isn't some doctrine that John believes. This is a life that John has lived. And when, it's a, when Christianity becomes a life that you live, everything changes. Everything changes. Until then, it's just happy talk. Now, it is good happy talk, but I want it more than that. I want it more than something that we have in our minds. I want you to experience God on a day-by-day -day basis. That's what God wants for you. That's how he wants to know you. You know, I, when you love somebody, when you love somebody, you like to spend time with them, right? When I first started dating Susan, I just wanted to spend time with her. If I couldn't spend time with her, I just wanted to talk to her, listen about things. You ever have you spend hours talking to this person? What did you talk about? Oh, stuff. Because you really wanted to know and understand them, to experience the, this, their lives in your life. Look what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. With full conviction. Too often over the centuries, the gospel has come only with words. They're good words. They're God's words. But if that's all there is to it, then it's not enough. It's not enough. And that's not what God wants for you. Paul said the gospel came not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You're not going to have full conviction without experience. That's why sometimes people, when troubles arise, their faith is shaken because they've never experienced God. You can't shake my faith. I've experienced him. That doesn't mean everything in my life is smooth. It isn't. But it does mean that I know God is real. And you don't have to talk to me about that. The most common ways, way that I've seen Christians experience God is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like the apostles, speaking in tongues is still to this day usually the first 
evidence of the power of God in a man or a woman's life. And once you speak in tongues, you never again will question or wonder about the reality of God. I still remember it was in 1972. That was the first time that I spoke in tongues. I was laying in my bed. I spoke in tongues. I cried. I will never forget that night because I had been excited about the Bible. For I had been you know, going to Bible-based fellowships for almost a year at that point. I was excited about God and the Bible, the concept of God. It wasn't until I spoke in tongues that, oh, this put it all together for me. And the power of the Holy Spirit, say by speaking in tongues or one of the other nine manifestations, is a very concrete way that you can experience God. But it is not the only way. And I want to talk to you about another way that you can tangibly experience God within your lives. I want you to personally experience God's joy, God's peace, and God's love. Not just the verses about God's joy, peace, and love. Those are good to know, but I want it to go further. And we can get to this place by looking at how Jesus got to that place. I think everybody can agree that Jesus was a pretty good example, how's that for an understatement, of what it's like to live with God. And that more than any other person who's ever drawn breath, Jesus Christ knew and experienced God. God was real to Jesus. I want him to be just as real to you. Look at John 13, 15. Here's how you get there. It's not just study. It says, Jesus is talking. He says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. If you would like to know God like Christ, if you would like to experience God like Christ, then let's follow his example. And one great way to follow his example is about something that he said in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. This is quite a famous verse. Many people know this. I'm sure this is not new to any of you here this morning. It's John 14, 12. Jesus, again, is talking. And he says, truly, truly, whenever you see that, whenever Jesus prefaces a statement with truly, truly, that means listen up. That means this is important to get. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, quick show of hands, people who believe in Jesus. Okay, yep, I'm seeing them go up all over the place. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, for years, I would read this verse, and my mind would immediately go to signs, miracles, wonders, and healings. That's certainly included in this verse, and that's something that I want to experience and enjoy. But that isn't it. That isn't the sum total. Today, I think of something a lot more basic than signs, miracles, and wonders. I think of experiencing God while I pray. And that's what I want to encourage you about this morning. The impact on your prayer, on your prayer life, and how you can experience God and your relationship with him. So let's look at Mark chapter 1. Mark is an interesting gospel. It is short and hard-hitting. 16 chapters, not a lot of fluff. It, start, it starts... One of the most common phrases in 
the Gospel of Mark is, and immediately. You know, he just moves from one thing to another, right along. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, speaking of Jesus Christ, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. So, Jesus and the apostles had bedded down for the night. Jesus gets up while it is still dark and leaves the camp before anyone else. Before anyone else is up and even notice what he's doing, he gets up and leaves. He went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, desolate, that doesn't mean like it was, you know, like after you know, a bomb had struck it or something. That's not what desolate means. It just means quiet and lonely. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They finally got up. It's like a counting around. It's like, hmm, Matthew, John, Judas. Where's Jesus? Anybody know where Jesus is? And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. So obviously when Jesus went to a desolate place, it wasn't just a stone's throw away. Okay? It was far enough away that it wasn't obvious where Jesus had gone. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. But this didn't faze Jesus. Private time with God was more important to Christ than all the other demands on his time. And obviously, with a limited amount of time to accomplish our redemption, he did have a lot to do. Not to mention what he had to do, but he also had to train the disciples to carry it on after he left. So it wasn't that Jesus didn't have things to do, but here's his priority. And in order to keep this priority, this importance, what he did was he got up while it was still dark because it was important for him to spend time with God, and he knew he had a full day. So he just got up early. Here we see Jesus praying alone. There are several other examples of Jesus getting off by himself and praying. This one was easy. Everybody was asleep. He got up and left. There's another time when crowds were around him. He sent his disciples off in a boat. Okay, got, got rid of these guys now. And then he went off to pray because he wanted to spend time alone with God. I think perhaps one of the most notable times Jesus was alone and praying was in the garden just before he was betrayed. He had his disciples wait over here, and then he went to pray by himself. If you read the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, the whole chapter is one long prayer of Jesus Christ talking with his Father. He talked to God about himself. He talked to God about his disciples. He talked to God about us, which is really intriguing. We were in his mind. So do you want to experience God? If you would like to experience God, let's imitate Christ which means let's up our game in prayer. So I would like you to try something, if you would, this week, and perhaps continue it. Start taking time to sit before God quietly and without an agenda. See, oftentimes when I pray, I have an agenda. I have lots of things I've got to pray for. I've got, like every morning I pray with my daughter, Sarah. We are, she's on her way to work. We're starting our day. We've got things to talk about and pray with uh, that we need for the day. And it's great to bring your needs, your concerns, your troubles to God. He invites you to do that. But that's not the only thing he invites you to do. He would just like to sit and talk with you. 
So listen to God without an agenda. Here's something novel. Ask God what he'd like to talk about. And then be quiet. Now, I know that this is hard for most of us, especially today. We are accustomed to constant stimulus. We're accustomed to allowing our mind to run, 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 run. But you can quiet your mind down. Just quietly listen. God, what would you have to say to me today? And just be quiet. Some days he'll have much to say to you. Some days you will just have an awareness of his presence in your life. Sometimes when I'm doing this, when I'm sitting before God, I will just speak in tongues quietly. Because, of course, you can speak in tongues without engaging your mind. You don't have to think about things to speak in tongues. That's very easy to do. I'd like you to try and start this with 10 minutes. Okay? Do it with 10 minutes. If you can't do 10 minutes, do 5 minutes. What I do now is because we have a grandfather clock in our living room, I'm down there, and it rings every 15 minutes. So I'll just, often what I'll do is I'll just speak in tongues for 15 minutes, and then I'll just sit before God for 15 minutes. You know, again, I need to get up earlier to do this, but it's worth it. It is worth it. Ask God what he wants to show you, and then be quiet. And allow him to show, allow him to fill you. It says in Psalms that in God's presence is fullness of joy. I want to, let's break that down a little bit. Joy is an emotional state that is tangible and recognizable to you. You know when you're in joy. You know and feel when you are at peace. See, this is a way I want you to experience God. I want you to experience his joy in your life. We all know what joy means. We, we have all had joy at some place, points in our life. You know what that means. You know how that feels. Allow God to fill you with joy. You know what peace feels like. We also know what stress feels like. Let God fill us with peace. You can tangibly feel the presence of God in your life if you will sit with him quietly. And once you start doing this, you won't want to stop. This morning I was doing this, and, you know, then it came up, oh, well, you know, I, I guess I ought to look at my teaching before I come in this morning. But I didn't want to. I wanted to just sit there with God a little longer. So I said, okay, well, I'll look at my teaching, then I'm going to come back and sit a little bit before I go to uh, fellowship today. You will find that you can experience God. And I want you to start off the first time you do this with communion. So what we have, we've got these for you. They're, when you leave today, you'll see these little cups. It not only has, well, it has grape juice, not wine, but it also has uh, a piece of bread in the top so that it's all together for you. And the first time you do this, as you do it, I'd like you to have communion, to just enjoy the, uh, the finished work of Christ within your soul and to thank God for what you have because of Jesus Christ. And then sit before him and see what God has for you. So, I'm going to have a word of prayer, okay? Father God, I give everyone to you here today, and those who are listening, Father. I thank you that you can teach us how to sit quietly in your presence, and that while we were there praying, God, we can experience your love. We can experience your joy. 
we can experience your peace. We can hear your heart and that we can leave your presence just as your son did, enriched and ready for our days. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, God bless you. It's good to be back. We'll see you back here in two weeks. God bless.